and welcome to Pragmatic Live, Pragmatic Marketing's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. My name is Rebecca Caligaris. I am the Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and more importantly to you, the host of today's event. Before we get started, just a couple of quick housekeeping items. First, a recording of this webinar and a copy of the slides will be available afterwards. You'll be able to access them by the end of the day at pragmaticmarketing.com slash live. And we'll send out an email with the link tomorrow so you can find it easily. Uh, second, questions. We love questions. If you look to the left of your screen, you'll see a chat box. Feel free to enter any and all questions you have in that box, and we'll work hard to get through as many of those as we can. Uh, what we don't get to today, we will record and release in an upcoming podcast to be sure we cover all your questions. Now, many of you are already familiar with Pragmatic Marketing, but for those of you not aware of us until today, welcome to the family. Pragmatic Marketing specializes in training companies and product teams on how to be truly market-driven. We provide techniques for listening to the market and gathering market facts, and then using those facts to shape strategies and drive execution. And we've been doing this and doing it quite successfully for over 20 years. Today's webinar topic is one that is near and dear to my heart, personas. When I was first exposed to pragmatic marketing training way back in 2005 as a director of marketing for a payments gateway, personas was one of the things that not only revolutionized my way of thinking, but when I went back and implemented it, the way my whole company worked. So joining us today to share his personal story and insight on implementing personas within the organizations he's worked with is Jonathan Lucky. Like many of us, Jonathan's path to product marketing and management wasn't direct. He started his career in TV and film before finding his true calling on the product side. He specializes in B2B product management and marketing within software companies. He's been where you are, faced the same struggles, and has some great insights into how to really make personas come alive within your organization. This presentation is packed with information and tips. So without further ado, here's Jonathan to get us started. Oh, thank you so much, Rebecca. I couldn't have asked for a better intro. I, I feel like I need to have you with me all the time to, to introduce me wherever I go. <laughs> thank you so much for that. <laughs> um, and um, thank you all of you for, for joining. Um, certainly is an, an honor that uh, Pragmatic has invited me to uh, present today on a lot of my experience with personas. And uh, it's my hope that um, the information I, I give you here can really help all of you in the same kind of journey and struggle that I have and, and continue to go on. So today um, what I wanted to kind of focus on is let's work towards gaining a deeper understanding of your market. Not just statistics, demographics, data, but really understanding our customers and our market at a deeper, more personal level understanding their goals, aspirations, beliefs, and so forth. And once we have that kind of deeper understanding, we need to craft a narrative that is going to tell that, those people's story to the rest of the business and even our partners, tell their triumphs, their goals, their aspirations, and their problems. Again, knowing these people deeper than just statistics and numbers, but real people, these are the people that we're in business for. And once we've done that, we're going to talk a little bit about how do we implement these personas in the business. So rather than them just being PDF documents sitting in SharePoint that only you know about and only you know where they are, how do you take this actionable market intelligence and implement it in some of the key parts of the business, right? So first off, um, let's start off with a little bit of a uh, poll or survey. And I'm really kind of curious to know uh, who in your business today consumes personas. So um, check, check the box. Let me know who in the business uh, consumes personas. Um, typically, in my experience in the background, it's often been um, the development side and the marketing side that have been the main consumers. Um, but that could be very much different for all of you. I'm curious to see the see some of the responses. Wow, they are really going. This is this is better than watching a presidential election. 
Yep, I see that this is really going. And looks like it is slowing down. So I do believe I will go ahead and click the skip to results button here. And looks like the winner is marketing. <laughs> I think the results are still are still scrolling in, but the results are marketing at fifty-eight percent. That's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense because um, marketing are the people that are creating the messaging. So they need to know exactly who it is they're messaging to in order to uh, in order to consume those personas. Really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of not surprised um, that executives don't really pay a whole lot of attention to it in sales. Um, and that's interesting that 18% of you don't use personas at all. So I really hope that um, this, our time today will be of a huge value to you to begin to use and implement them in the business. I really hope that you'll find this very valuable. Okay. So let's first let's talk about what are personas? What are they? And especially for those of you who aren't using them at all, you'll probably really want to know what they are. Um, Personas are an archetypical profile that represents the composition of your market. So these, it basically takes all of the information you know about the market or your company knows about the market and distills it down into a single digestible document that you can share with various people in the business. So rather than a whole 50-page in-depth market research document that no one's going to read, this creates something nice and digestible that you can teach and share across the business about who it is that you're in business for. They usually include information about uh, typical themes about these people, so their education level, um, what kind of uh, computers that they use or technology, how, what's their expert level in technology, uh, what type of background information, so where are they from, how old are they, those types of information. Um, how many personas should your product have? Uh, they should be driven by the market. So if your market demands that you have eight different personas, um, so be it. What's important is that you prioritize the, the most valuable personas because obviously you can't necessarily write 30 different marketing messages. So typically you may want to prioritize the top three or the top five. But what's important here is that personas take all of the information that you know about the market and turn it into something digestible for your uh, business and for your colleagues. So why would we even use a persona? Why is it important? Well, personas help the business understand the market. And simultaneously, it's an alignment tool that makes sure that everybody in the business, sales, development, marketing, accounting, customer service, even the folks in the janitorial department, it makes sure that all of these people are 100% aligned and understand who it is that we're in business for. And that's what's really important. It helps development teams understand what to build. And dev teams are no strangers to this because they need to know the context behind who they're building the product for, what are their habits, and that helps drive the UX design and the UI design of the product itself. And on the marketing side, it helps marketing craft the message. You want to know who it is you're talking to, well, you have to be able to craft a very powerful message that relates to these individuals. So what it's all about, personas help keep the business aligned with who it is we're talking to, who it is that we're in business for. And it is all of our jobs as product marketers and product managers to own this element of it. Um, maybe not do every single piece of this, but we should be one of the core drivers of building and formulating our personas. Because as messengers of the market, we have to own this and we have to make sure that the entire business from the highest levels to the lowest levels is 100% aligned with who it is that we're in business for. So where do we start? How do we begin writing personas? Um, often we'd be very tempted to start writing. You know, we all in our minds have an idea of what our market is, especially if you're in this field, which we 
all probably are, we all already have some idea in our heads about who is our customer. And so we'll start writing, and that may not necessarily be an accurate representation of who is in the market. That might not be an accurate representation of who ideally we want to market to. So where do you start? You do your homework. Do research. Mix quantitative research, so surveys, industry analysis, uh, geographic, demographic data, so quantitative data, but also use qualitative data. So that is getting into the reads, going out on the front lines, and talking to customers and talking to the market. Listen to the market, not talk to the market. Listen to the market and understand them as they are as individuals and as a people. And then you want to analyze, once you've been armed with quantitative and qualitative data, you want to begin to analyze what are the common themes and patterns across that market that, uh, that are pervasive, that make sense, and that are compelling. And this is going to help us begin to actually write that persona. What's important to remember here is to keep an outside-in approach. <clears throat> so, for example, um, one time I noticed where uh, we, we were first starting to set out to write personas, and the idea was, oh, well, we're, we're a technology company, so we'll, we'll go ahead and use our own IT team, and we'll, we'll use Roger in IT to base our persona off of. He's an IT person, and all IT people are the same. Don't do it. <laughs> because um, you have to begin to ask yourself certain questions. Well, Roger in IT, is Roger, does Roger work in the same market that we're in business for? Well, we do healthcare IT solutions. Well, Roger doesn't work in a, in a healthcare organization. He works at a company that serves the healthcare industry. Does Roger work at a company that makes more than $500 million a year? No, Roger works at a company that makes $100 million a year. So that doesn't. So Roger, in one type of company, has a completely different set of problems, issues, challenges, and desires than from Roger at our little old company. So it's really important not to use your own people <laughs> in formulating your personas because the people in your business that work in your business aren't the people that live in your market. So really make sure that you're talking to people that are out in your market. Now, how do you talk to people that are out in your market? Well, that's through qualitative research, and that's through Nahito. Um, I remember when I first took my, my first pragmatic course several years ago, um, I had kind of this Plato's cave moment where I realized, wow, you know, I need to go in to see customers. I need to go out and talk to the market. Sitting in on sales calls, and watching support tickets and reading through enhancement requests, that's, that's not enough. I need to be out there in the market talking and listening with customers and really to understand who they are at a very deep emotional level. You should probably do about two to three interviews a month, and you're probably going to go, holy smokes, Jonathan, there is no way how I can get out of the office two or three days. I sit in meetings all day long. And if you're anything like me, you'll, you'll have meetings at 8.30 in the morning that run all the way to 7, 8 o'clock at night because you're in sprint review sessions. You're in uh, sales forecast meetings. You're in all these different types of meetings that take up a ton of your time. And what I really want to stress is that you've got to get out of that office. Do whatever is necessary. Take a spe designated specific day during each week you know, to say, you know what, I'm not going to be in the office. I'm going to be in talking to the market. I'm going to be out there talking with the customer. That's a tough thing, conversations to have with your boss because you're going to ask your boss, hey, uh, madam or Mr. Boss, I want to go hop on a plane and go talk to this person over here that isn't necessarily a customer, and I'm going to get some information out of them. Of course, your boss is going to go, well, you better come back with a purchase order. <laughs> or, hey, let me send Larry the sales guy with you so that way he can close a deal while you're out there. You have to stand firm and say, 
this is important. We need to objectively gather market information. This isn't about our pipeline. This isn't about right now. This, the information we're going to get out of these visits is going to give us valuable, actionable market intelligence that's going to help us with our strategic planning five years out. This is a future long-term game. Who you should be talking to during this time are potentials. So um, Pragmatic usually breaks down the market into these three segments. There are potentials, there are evaluators, and there are customers. So customers are your customers. So they're the people that bought your product, they're using it happily for better or for worse, they're your customers. Your evaluators are people that are in that are shopping for your product right now. They are shopping. So they're probably in conversations with your sales team or they're probably in conversations with your competitors. So these people are great and you should talk to these people. You should listen to them. However, again, they're not a huge chunk of the market and if you only listen to your evaluators, your, the future of your product and your messaging is only going to extend as far to the future as your sales pipeline. So we're talking 90 days. <laughs> so you really want to talk to potentials. These are the people who are not in your customer base. These are people who are not shopping for your product at all. They may not even know that they have a need for your solution. And what's really great about talking to these people is that they will uncover certain, uh, you'll actually uncover certain things that you didn't even know about why they aren't shopping. So you really want to talk to these potentials. And inevitably, they are always the largest segment of your market. So I really wanted to spend time here to really say, you've got to get out of the market, talk to these customers, listen to the potentials, and really spend most of your time with them. And your goal in these interviews is to really learn your, your, these people's goals, aspirations, and feelings. So you want to understand how they use products and what features other products have and all that kind of stuff. You do want to understand that. But you really want to understand each and every one of these people's desires emotionally. So now that we've been doing our Nihito visits, we've been getting out of the office, we've been talking to people, um, what you'll want to do after you've reached a sufficient number, and that's up to you, um, of interviews, to start actually going back and um, reading these interviews. Um, and by the way, these are some questions that you can ask um, while you are interviewing. So a couple of ones I'll call out is, um, when you leave work, how do you want to feel? So um, this question I really like because this gives us some insight into the subject's um, goals and desires. So when you ask them that question, they'll go, you know, Jonathan, I just want to be able to go home at 5 o'clock so that I can spend more time with my kids. I miss my kids' dinner. Wow, that's a huge learning, right? We've just learned that what they just want to do, they just want to not be overworked. They just want to spend time with their children. That's aspirational. We could use that later. Um, what drove you crazy today? I like to ask that and say specifically what drove you crazy today because it's going to help the subject um, really articulate to you what's on the top of their mind, what happened today. Oh, man, you know, all of our servers went down. It was such a pain. It took us six hours to get it on. It was all because of some Microsoft update that we didn't anticipate, and it caused us a lot of problems or something like that. So that's a really strong question to help you understand What's driving them crazy right now? Or even them just walking you through what a good day looks like, what a bad day looks like, what a regular day looks like, all to help you understand who is this person that I'm talking to? Who is this person that we are interacting with in the marketplace? So once you've done that, now it's time to actually write a report. Now before you actually put pen to paper, I recommend you do this. And when I started doing this, it really helped me out a lot. As soon as I would have a research interview, I would immediately go and get back to the office and seek out one of my colleagues and tell them about it. Why would you do that? It is because you wanna, if you do that, that helps you internalize everything you learn. You go, hey, uh, Madam Colleague, I just had a great conversation with Acne Energy, and they told me this, and this is what I learned. 
And you might, as you're explaining it, uncover some new stuff that you didn't write down. So now you can start writing it down. And when you go to write your report, the information is that much uh, more fluid to recall. So this template here that you're seeing, um, I've got this right off of the Pragmatic Alumni site. So they have tons of templates on there, so I often use them. Um, this is a really great template just for you to organize your thoughts. And you should probably write it like a story, like a mini story. So today I went in and I saw Carl, and, and everyone was nice in Carl's office, and I shook Carl's hand. Carl was sitting there. He had a, a two coffee mugs sitting on his desk. So write it like a little story. And then we did this, and then we did that. And then Carl got really excited when... Um, when you write it like that, that's going to help you recall that information much more rapidly for when you use it next. So the next thing, now that we have done a great job of collecting all of this information about uh, qualitative information about our market, now it's time to ask ourselves the question, did our interview, do our interview subjects share the same sentiments as the entire market. So how pervasive is everything that we observed? So what I would do is I go in and I read through my reports before I read through my reports, take out a highlighter, and I literally highlight certain observations, ideas, theories, thoughts, problems, whatever, anything. So I highlight them. I prioritize them and I go, okay, these different things I've observed, and this could have been the fact that, uh, that Carl uses an iPhone. It could have been the fact that when I met with Jane, that uh, Jane's desk doesn't have any clutter on it. It could have been when I met with, with uh, Larry, that Larry, um, Larry said that he has trouble with uh, Microsoft updates all the time. I take all of this, and I begin to formulate survey questions against these. And what we did was we ran a monthly survey, just one to ten questions. Anything longer, then you should probably do the survey less frequently. But just one to ten questions that, that are based off of your interview observation. And the whole point is to actually validate, did the stuff we interview for, did that stuff we learned there, is that stuff true across the entire market? This helps mitigate that risk that all the people that you interviewed were just outliers. <laughs> So this is really important. You, you're, you're doing your research qualitatively, and then you're validating your research quantitatively. And um, really, if these questions, if you're finding that your survey is way off, so like nobody felt like uh, your interview subjects, they don't feel the same or it's not pervasive, then what I advise you to do is go back and, re and find other people to interview that are in, this in, in your market that match this and then re-interview and then retest it just to make sure. Because you want to make sure that your data is great. You want to make sure that this is near as darn it an accurate representation of your marketplace. Um, and by the way, if you're having trouble getting um, some, re some respondents, um, then what I would suggest you do is uh, what we used to do is do a $5 Starbucks gift card if you, have the, if you have the budget and bandwidth for that to kind of boost up the numbers a bit. Um, if you're finding that you don't really have the time to do it, then what you could do is actually, you know, I, I think I heard this at Product Camp, uh, read, hire someone from People Per Hour or Fiverr to actually carry out the surveys for you. Um, but you still want to make sure you're integrally involved. Even hire an advisory firm to actually carry out this stuff if you really have the budget for that too. So once we have the quantitative information, and we already have the qualitative. Now, this is where your magic and mojo as a product manager and a product marketer comes into play. So um, what you're going to do is you're going to take all of your data, your, your, your main ideas that you've learned, and the main ideas that you have validated through your surveys, and you're going to write them down onto sticky notes. So the goal here is for you to begin to organize your ideas into some sort of manageable fashion. So you want to just analyze it. And what you're going to do is take all of your different sticky notes, and you're going to stick them on a wall, and then um, stick your sticky notes on a wall, and then you're going to sit back and stroke your chin and go, hmm. 
this is where now your intellect is going to look and analyze for common themes and patterns that are existing in the marketplace and organize and cluster these different themes and ideas together. So it looks something like this, um, where you have your different sticky notes, and then as you look, you'll realize, hmm, there's a common theme here. So if you look on the bottom right-hand circle there, there are a couple of sticky notes like we learned in our interviews and our research that 30% uh, of our market follows Sean T on Twitter. Who would have thought? Is that even relevant? We don't know. Maybe. Then we also realized that um, most people in our market and a lot of the people we interviewed, they all jog every day. They get up every morning at 5 a.m. and they jog. That's what they do. And then we also learned um, through the market that everybody, um, that most people put their kids into community sports. Huh. This is telling us that there is a common theme here, that people in our market really care about their health. They really care about fitness, and they care about it for themselves and their family. That's a huge learning. Yeah, it might not be specifically related to our product, but we could use that to help forgive the rest of the team some context about who it is we're dealing with here. And in the upper left-hand corner, you'll notice that you have other things, like the person wears very simple clothing, very clean cut, no gaudy jewelry or anything like that. Their desk is completely clean. There's no loose papers. Everything is completely organized. They only have... 10 emails in their inbox, which is totally not me. I have like 3,000 in my inbox. So they only have 10 emails in their inbox. Hmm. That's an interesting theme. What this is telling me is that this, oh, yes, by the way, they also have iPhones and iPads. So what this is telling me is that our subjects in our market, our market really values simplicity. They like things to be simple and organized. That's going to be useful because that could help drive the user experience, the user interface, and a lot of the messaging around that. That's valuable information. Wow, we just learned this stuff. So you do this with your different ideas. Organize them together and synthesize them into common themes that you've realized. Now, what's really great about this, oh, we might not have realized that this is eighth grade English class. You have a mind map. So remember in eighth grade English where before you started writing a story, you had to uh, start writing out your main ideas with the little bubbles and circle them around? We just did it. The only difference is, is that we have now validated our mind map already using market data quantitatively and qualitatively. That is huge. We've done so much work already that now we're actually ready to try and start writing that persona. So... Let's write the persona. Um, and there's something, by the way, I forgot to mention a bit earlier about buyers and users. Um, you'll probably write both buyer and user personas, or maybe one group owns buyers and one group owns users. Just remember, when you're writing these personas, A, whether you should, use, you should have both buyers and users. If you don't have buyers and user personas, you're going to risk ignoring one or the other at your peril. So you do want to give your buyers and your users equal amount of attention <laughs> um, or else um, you risk out losing key using criteria or key buying criteria. So when you're writing the persona, this is a narrative, not a report. This is a story, not demographics, not statistics. And we want to tell a story about who are these people that we're in business for? What, is, what are their challenges? What are they up against? And what would they love to see happen in their lives that could make their lives better? And so going back to eighth grade English, let's use story writing mechanics to do it. So um, there is a protagonist and an antagonist. There is a parts of the story structure, a beginning, a middle, and end. And we have to remember to keep it personal. This is a person that we're talking about here. So let's talk about an antagonist and a protagonist. So the protagonist, well, that's easy. That is the hero of our story. This is the representative of our marketplace. This is the person that we're talking about here. This person should have some sort of name, should have a name. Don't name him persona number two or name her persona name number four. 
This is a person's name. So say something like Carl the coder, Peter the partner, uh, Connor the CIO, uh, Roger the IT guy. You know, give this person a name. And if this person has a name, then they need a face. Use a real picture. Now you'll go, well, why would we want to use a picture? Um, humans have a unique ability, or humans just instinctively recognize and emphasize more with faces than they do anything else. So if you give something a face, it's going to give them something instantly to recall. So make sure that your persona has a picture and a name, has a picture most of all. And that picture you can buy off of stock photos, Shutterstock, or something like that. So you probably don't want to use your cousin or your uncle or anything like that. <laughs> so um, now the antagonist, this is a bit different. Instead of, this may be a person. I mean, if your product is to actually avoid someone with dealing with a person, it could be a person. But the antagonist is the struggles of the hero. So this is, this is the thing that's holding the hero, our protagonist, our persona back from achieving what they want to achieve. And so we want to make sure we have that problem there and we've identified that problem. Now, by this point, you should have already identified the market problem early on in your market research. You probably have identified the market problem even before that. If you haven't done that by this point, you probably want to go back to the beginning and identify the market problem first before you go further. But make sure that this is the problem. Each problem should have um, some sort of impact or cost. Not in dollars and hours. That's statistics. What is the real human cost? So if I was to say, if I, I can't get home, I have to work an extra 20 hours a week. That doesn't really tell, that's a cost, that's numbers, that's statistics. That backs up what we're saying. But that doesn't really show the real human cost to it. But if I was to say, I work so much that I never get to have dinner with my kids, now that's a real human cost. I don't get to have quality time with my children. So that's huge. It's a real human cost, and you use the, the statistics, 40% of every or 65% of our market spends more than 20 hours a week working or something like that. That statistic backs up what you just said, that they don't have time to meet with their kids or spend time with their kids. So remember that, real human cost. So once we have our antagonist and our protagonist, now it's time to actually start formulating our story. Um, again, eighth grade English, there, a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. A exposition, a climax, and a resolution. So your exposition is the point at which you learn um, about the actual individual themselves. So this is the... This is where you're explaining to your audience um, the background about this person. This is Roger. Roger comes in every morning with a Starbucks cup in his hand. Roger sits down at his desk. The first thing Roger does is he checks his email to see what servers are down. And that's it. You know, pretty much you're just giving a lot of the background about the person. But you can use some foreshadowing here to keep things interesting. So you can say Roger comes in. He sits down at his computer. As he's logging into his computer, he is really excited for the day, but little did he know things won't go that way. <laughs> so you can use um, foreshadowing to actually tie the exposition into the actual climax of the story. So the climax, this is where the problem comes to a head. This is where you're really saying, here's the problem that, that Roger has. Roger has a horrible problem that is driving him crazy. He's not able to spend time with his kids. Projects are getting delayed, which is causing the entire team to fall behind. The backlog of work is extended forward over a year, and the team feels like it will never get anything done. And you really want to make sure that you're tying everything back to that real human cost that's happening when you're talking about the struggles and the problems against the with the with the antagonist, and then finally you have the resolution. So the resolution is what is the ideal outcome that um, that our persona wants to see. Now remember, this isn't the solution. We're not telling people. We're not going to tell our team here's the product that that, that is going to solve it. 
what we want to do here is actually say, what does Roger want to see? Or what do, how does Roger want to feel when a solution is in place, if that makes sense? So Roger just wants to go home knowing that he got something done today. Roger just wants to go home so he can be on time for dinner for one. Um, Jane, the CIO, wants to actually be on time with her projects for once and not be hampered by all of the other stuff, the project delays and so forth. So we really want to at this point say here is the ideal outcome, not the solution, not the product, but here is how our subject, our persona wants to feel at the end of this. This is important because this is going to help uh, marketing build out what the messaging could be potentially aspirationally, and this also helps developers with some context to help them outline certain things like success criteria. So let's look at an example here for you guys um, that I've created. Now, um, this, you could have written a persona in a Word document or something like that if you wanted to. There are a lot of different ways to lay this out. Um, for me in particular, um, I use a little tool called AHA. It's a product road mapping and strategic planning tool, really cool tool. And they have a little thing in there called personas. Um, and so really we've made it just really easy to plug in a lot of your key information in there that made sense for building out your persona. So that's what I used here. But you don't have to use that tool. You can write it in Word. But I like to be a little bit more complex personally. Note here, layout-wise, that in the upper left-hand corner is the picture. So that way the picture, the face of your market is the first thing there, right? The person's name, Connor the CIO. And then I like to put in little quotes here and there from real people in our market and in our industry to show, hey, these are these are customers' words. This is our market's words, and this is how they feel right now. Um, also, just some key demographics for the people who like to just peruse a bit, and also maybe a sidebar with some likes and some dislikes. Typically, the first, and when you're actually writing the story itself, you have um, just kind of the beginning. The first paragraph or two is the, the exposition, the beginning. The third and fourth paragraph outlines the problems and how these pro and the impacts of those problems. And then the last paragraph or two is really just to say, here's the resolution, here's that ideal outcome for our persona as well. So that just gives you an example of how you could potentially lay out, lay out that persona that you're building. Now, here's the fun part. You've written the document, but how do you implement it? Remember, we don't want just a document that is written and it saved the PDF on SharePoint. We need to use this document to proselytize to the masses, here is who we are in business for. Here is our market. Here are the here are the, their challenges, their problems, their goals, and aspirations. So um, first thing, and I had this misstep early on because I got really excited when I first learned about, learned about personas, um, that my misstep was I didn't get decision-maker buy-in early, early in the process, like before you even go on your first visit. Because when you get that kind of support from decision-makers, then that's going to make it easier for you to take the time you need to go on those interviews to get the money to do the surveys and so forth. And it's really just having the conversation with your boss or executives and go, hey, I have a project for us to go and get unprecedented market information that is going to help strengthen our product roadmap for the next five years. This project is going to require this many interviews a month. We're going to be running these kind of surveys. And out the end of it, we're going to get XYZ. Right? So you really want to involve them. Involve them early on. So go on your interviews and then come back and talk to the decision makers and go, hey, I just had a great meeting with the chief executive officer of Acme Corp. And um, I, here's what I learned. And send them the report afterwards. Will an executive read the report? Probably not. But what you're doing is you're over-communicating. And you're showing, here's this information. And you're starting to plant the seed in their mind very early on that this isn't stuff just coming out of your brain. This is the stuff that your market is telling. And they would, it would behoove them to listen to it, right? So you really want to start involving them very early on and keeping them apprised of the research process. 
Now, this is the hard part, the long part, and the best part. This is actually getting those personas embedded into the business. The key here is to connect personas to actual business processes. So what you should do is, looking at your personas, ask yourself the question, what parts of the business are affected by or provide a positive or negative impact on people in our market? And that's probably just about every part of the business. And then what specific processes should a persona exist in or should people in our business have our personas on their mind when they're making decisions about these processes? So development is usually easy because developers are already trying to make sure they build a good product for users. So now that you have actual market data, you can go to your dev team and go, here's, what, here's what's going on in the market. And you can actually, say, implant this into success criteria. I come out of the Scrum world, and in some of our story, in most all of our stories, we have um, success criteria. And this success criteria um, we've implemented some of the bits from the persona. So um, if this story is successful, then this, should, this feature should save Dan 10 hours a week. That all feeds back into Dan's goal, which is I just want to go home and be with my kids. So you can actually start taking elements of your persona and putting them in there. Do buyers matter in the development process? Yes because certain buyers may have certain criteria that matters to them. So, um, for example, um, when I went and interviewed a, um, uh, an IT director for a major blood center in Cincinnati, um, they mentioned, you know, hey, there's certain criteria that we have that have to be in, our, in products. Even if our users aren't going to use them, they just have to be there. It has to meet 510K compliance. I know that really... It's, it's a HIPAA product. It's used for HIPAA purposes. But really, in our organization, it just has to meet 510K as an extra thing. So that told us, well, hey, there's certain features we need to be putting in our product to make sure that it's 510 compliant too. So the development process is usually a low-hanging fruit. Marketing. How do you implement it in the marketing team? A couple of different ways. A is the message. Marketing people need personas to help them understand how to articulate our value proposition to the market. So imagine now when they're armed with this really strong persona and they actually understand this person at a very human level, they could write messaging that says, finally, Mr. Prospect, you can be home on time and spend more time with your kids. That's a powerful message as opposed to save 20 hours a year. <laughs> Finally, you can spend more time with your kids. Or now you can spend more time jogging because you have blah, X product. Um, also, you could use the personas to write marketing collateral that's aspirational. So um, some of the research we found that CIOs, yes, they're C-level executives, but they don't necessarily feel like they have a seat at the executive decision-making table. So... Um, they want a bigger piece of the pie, but they're often seen as still IT people. So perhaps we can write marketing collateral that shows how this individual can achieve that level of decision-making power by using our solution. So you can write marketing material that aspires to help that person see, wow, if I get this product, I actually could achieve this thing that I want to achieve. Sales. People will go, well, how on earth? I think in the poll, uh, sales is probably one of the lowest rated items. Why would sales care? Sales doesn't care about the market. They care about their pipeline and who they're talking to right now. And that's absolutely true. Salespeople only care about winning and closing deals, and they should. But how can personas help them achieve that? Um, there's two ways. And so what we did is we took our personas and we asked a lot, we asked a lot of questions about how do they buy, where do they buy, when do they buy? And we use this information to actually map out our, and match our sales process and our buying process to how the persona buys. And when we found that different personas buy in different ways, we had different sales processes that match that. So like literally in the sales process, if they said, you know, hey, we don't buy unless we go through ITIL Council, then we have to go through this group and this group and that group, you literally can make those groups 
deal stages within your pipeline so that your salesperson goes, hey, you know, I know specifically that if it doesn't go past ITIL, there's no point in pushing this prospect down this funnel because it didn't go through ITIL, for example. So you really can use the knowledge, the market knowledge of the personas to map out your buying stages so your sales have more predictability about their pipeline. The other thing is it helps mitigate salespeople's risk. So salespeople are going to call on a customer. If they don't really know who that customer is, there's a huge risk. If they don't know who are all the buyers and the users and how they influence the final decision, then they're going into that sale blind. Educating them on who these different people are helps them be ready before they actually go in and make that sales call. And speaking of preparation, the final thing you can do with sales is use this um, to actually build sales questions. So often we spend so much time trying to educate our salespeople on um, we spend so much time trying to educate our salespeople on the product itself. They don't really need to know the product. They need to understand the product value, and they also need to understand most of all the customer's pains associated with the value. So what are the pains that they suffer from? So what you should do is sit down with your sales manager and sit down with your salespeople and come up with 10 to 15 very powerful, very strong questions that the salespeople can ask prospects in a sales conversation. Mr. Prospect, for example. Mr. Prospect, I understand that 85% um, of our market has a problem with meeting project deadlines. Um, tell me, is that something that you're experiencing as well? Um, Mr. Prospect, uh, I understand that uh, you're really dealing with productivity issues. Is this a problem that you're dealing with as well? Use this to really formulate your sales questions, and your salespeople are going to absolutely love this. They're going to eat it up. So last part of when it comes to implementing is people are going to challenge you a lot, and you should welcome it. <laughs> Do it. People are going to say, we don't need personas. We understand the market. You should, uh, you should go and get the data and show them otherwise. People are going to go, you know, I don't think, Jonathan, that that's our market. You ask the question, well, hey, um, tell me in your experience, what have you found? Get the data from them, and then go take that data and then test it. And they may very well be right. And if they are, then you update and integrate your new learnings into your persona. If they're wrong, counter with your own data. You want to make sure that this is as near as darn it to the true representation of your market. So you should definitely be okay with checking your ego at the door and accepting new learning, but making sure that whatever you say the market is, that it's backed up by actionable market facts. And most of all, you've got to be the persona's champion. You, you as a product manager, and we as a product manager and product marketers, have the sacred duty and mission to be the messengers of the market. We have the, all of the backing and ability and knowledge to gather internal and external market data to synthesize it into who it is that we're in business for. And you have to be that champion. No one else can do it. It's not, and if you don't do it, then individual departments will. Customer experience will start to go, you know, we know what the market is. But they're only going to understand the market from the standpoint of our existing customers. Salespeople will go, well, we know what the market is. Salespeople will only understand the market as far forward as their pipeline. Executives may go, we know what the market is, but executives are only going to understand the market from the standpoint of profitability numbers. But you as the product manager have to be that champion. You have to stay strong, deal with the objections, do the research, get out of the office, and talk to customers. So in summary, take the time to do qualitative and quantitative research, especially qualitative. Get out of the office, talk to your customers, talk to uh, most of all potentials, people who aren't shopping for your product. Don't assume, and if you are assuming, validate your assumptions. Make sure that you're telling the story about your market. The demographics and the statistics only exist to validate the story that you're telling is true. But tell that human story about that market. And keep that story emotional, and that way people can invest themselves, your team can invest themselves into solving your persona's problems. 
and get the buy-in and make sure that it's not just a document sitting in, in, in SharePoint. Take that document and embed it right inside of business processes across the company. So um, really, thank you. That, that's, that's my presentation. I really hope you guys have found it uh, quite valuable um, and useful. There's always more to share, but um, I, I, I don't want to put everyone to sleep. So I do believe um, I guess I hand it back to you, Rebecca, for questions. You bet, and we've got some great questions. That was a, an excellent presentation, Jonathan. I assure you no one is sleeping. Uh, they are sending <laughs> in some great questions too. Um, let's just get started. So the first question comes from Eugene. Uh, in your past experience, how long will it take to bring marketing and sales and other groups on board with a building a persona initiative? Um, for, mar for marketing and sales, I would definitely say sales takes longer. <laughs> Um, um, I would say we really didn't start seeing everything crystallize in our organization until probably about two and a half years after introducing them. So it really took that long to really begin looking at our process. And sometimes it's going to take some organizational changes in the way how other departments do business in order for that change to happen. So sometimes it might actually happen faster, but it took us about two and a half years to really see it crystallize, but it was worth it. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And then you mentioned some of the ways to um, socialize it internally, and Victoria asked if you could just elaborate a bit more on how to socialize it, particularly, and maybe some examples of the guerrilla tactics. Yeah. Um, so how are some ways I, I socialize it? Here's one thing. Um, what I used to do um, when I sat on sales calls is literally after the sales call, um, talk to the salesperson about who was in the room on that sales call. And we would go, yeah, that guy, he seemed like the, he was a decision maker. So he, he said, you know, he was very strong. And, and I go, well, who do you think that person aligns with in terms of our personas? And then that person goes, yeah, that's definitely a Connor the CIO. And then we go, okay, well, what about this other person in the room? This person asked a ton of technical questions, not really buying questions. They just wanted to know how everything worked. Well, um, yeah, you know, I, I think the salesperson, you know, I think that person is a Dan the IT guy. I think that person really is that. So what you want to kind of do is almost be right there in the reads and show them how they can really implement them right there in the field when you're trying to socialize them. So that way they begin to start tying real-life people to it. The other thing that um, kind of I did was I created these little note cards that was like a, it was like a little big note card or one sheeter about the persona just had a picture and a couple of blurbs. And, you know, often I would hand those out. Or maybe uh, if someone is definitely looking like it on the phone, I'd hold up a card and go, yep, this is this person. <laughs> so, um, you know, definitely there are a lot of different ways you can do it. Guerrilla tactics-wise, it's really just about implementing something even though you're not calling it that. So, a really good example of that, um, here's a really, and I don't want to spend too much time on this one, uh, but I really want to bring this example out, is that uh, my boss um, and I had a really spirited debate about buyers versus users in terms of personas. And, um, of course, as a boss, he only cares about buyers because buyers have money in their pocket. And my argument was both were important. But um, really it came down to really showing how the users were influencing the buying decision. So I would actually bring up something about a user uh, and something that is affecting the actual deal in the pipeline. And I go, yeah, this person said this and that. And it's like, well, why is that person holding up the deal? That person is evaluating the product technically. The actual buyer really has nothing to do with the actual solution itself. And they go, wow, so he's actually a user. So what you do is you kind of use certain tools, certain ways of kind of implementing the personas without actually calling them that and without actually calling them buyers and users. So I hope that one helped. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and Jason asked a question, which I think is interesting, because you and I had talked about this previously. Uh, yeah. Is there a suggested maximum amount of personas to have for a product? They currently have over 30 personas. Wow. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with having 30 personas. Um, the number of personas should be driven by the market. So if your market says that you've got 30 different personas out there, so be it. 
um, what I would do is prioritize them, and I would prioritize them against value and impact. So if a certain persona uh, is um, – um, and when, it, when you look at the wider element of your marketplace is like 60% of your market versus the other 29, you probably want to prioritize that persona first. And if there's 60% of the market and they are composing of two-thirds of your company's income, you probably want to prioritize those guys. Um, whereas the, the, the 25th persona really is a very, very niche and small segment, and it's not really going to affect you probably want to prioritize that a little bit lower. So you've got to really – you can have 30, but you definitely want to prioritize them. Excellent. So Mark asked uh, personas being living, breathing documents. How often should they be updated? Um, I would say as often as you can. I think I was – I mean, when we first introduced personas, um, we were tinkering with them almost, uh, almost biweekly. Um, and I'd say once you get them pretty solid, I would say at least reevaluate every month. Um, as you're kind of because when you're doing these Nihito visits and these surveys, that's going on every month. So you probably want to reevaluate your personas every month based on the aggregate data as well. Excellent. And we are getting a tons of questions here, Jonathan. Uh -oh. so you're definitely going to cool. have some good podcasts. Um, yeah. Let's see. Here's one. I'm getting, we're going to reach out as a group hug for this person because we've all been there. Susan says, you provided a great game plan to move forward with. Can we redeem ourselves if we have created personas from the inside out and derived the information who people – try that again – who have created personas from the inside out and derived the information from people who work with our customers rather than talking with customers directly? What's our first step? Oh, could you repeat the last part of that question with the customers? It says, all right, so in the past they've derived information by talking to the people who work with the customers instead of the customers directly. What's the, the quickest uh, way for them to fix that? Um, yeah, definitely uh, you can redeem yourself because um, that's exactly what happened with us because we were doing that exact thing. We were, it was very much basing our personas off of us internally. Um, what, what I would do is immediately start getting and talking to those customers firsthand. If you really want to, if you don't want to lose the information that's there, go and talk to those customers that other people were telling you their market information about. So now you can start hearing and talking to them firsthand with your own um, eyes and mind. And um, once you've done that, um, test these people against the wider market that you know is in your marketplace. You probably want to even mix some new people in there that haven't been talked to before. And in terms of re-educating people, um, I would highlight the stuff when you're re-educating your team about what really the market is. <laughs> um, highlight the stuff that is dramatically different and show the data. You know, hey, we thought this in 2011 about the market, but really it's this. You know, so really highlight where the, 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 the false assumptions or the information that was actually incorrect, highlight and correct it. So that way people are as soon as possible getting it. Do a PowerPoint presentation, pull people aside, do what you have to do. I hope that helps. <laughs> Excellent. All right, I think we have probably time for one more question. Uh, so this question is, is something we hear quite a bit, right? Uh, yeah. Many of our customers are international. Visiting them is more difficult. Any thoughts about mm -hmm. phone calls, emails, or other ways of, of talking with them? Um, you know, I really like this question. Um, and that was the thing. That's the same thing for us. Um, I've worked at a couple of companies that were, two companies that were international, had customers everywhere. Um, what you do is, um, well, either phone calls, you can do phone calls. If you can, do like a go-to meeting or with a webcam so at least you can see their face. Um, and what I would do is kind of, I call this stowing away. So try to stow away on a certain trip. So if you know that your salespeople are going to be closing some big deal in the United Kingdom, go ahead and go, hey, raise your hand and see if you can go. Because <laughs> salespeople would love to have a product manager in the room <laughs> when they're trying to close a deal, right? So go ahead and go with them, and then while you're there, then go meet with the customer. Um, here's an example. This is something I did once, um, not internationally, but travel-wise, because travel was always tough, is that um, my friends were having a wedding, and I was going to be in a wedding in Cincinnati back in August. And um, I, I wanted to talk to some customers, 
So I knew we had like 10 potentials out there. So what I did was I just drove up there early, a couple days early, and spent those two days with customers. And so what was great about that for the company is it didn't cost the company any money because I was already traveling in the first place. It only costed the company some of my time to go out there and talk to the market. So you might be able to do the same thing, you know, plan a trip to Europe, <laughs> and then instead of using two of your vacation days, use two of those days to actually visit some customers. So you're still technically working. You're still spending time in the market with customers, and your job is going to love it because you're not spending money on travel because you were going there anyway. So I, I hope that one helps. That's a great idea. And we've been talking here about how since uh, it's a leap year and we have leap day next Monday, that you could spend that whole day doing market visits and not have any yeah. working days from last year, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Leap day Nahido. All right, Jonathan, that was fantastic. I really appreciate the time today, um, and we will definitely follow up with a podcast to get more questions. And, yeah. Uh, next, yeah, and in our, both of your com- uh, contact information and mine is on the screen, so we definitely welcome uh, people to reach out to us directly as well. <laughs>